And that really, to me, really is the story of every single person that I know that's gotten sick, every single person that's been through a terrible personal trauma or collective trauma, is that they start to get really interested in the health of systems and in fixing things down at the roots because it is not enough to fix things up just at the flowers and at the the stems it's you have to fix things down in the roots and it's difficult and it doesn't it's not unlike the hero's journey it's not this like one epic journey where you go out and you fix it and then it's done it's this cyclical process that happens over and over and over and over again Hi friends, welcome to the Medicine Stories podcast. I'm Amber Hill. This is episode 106, my interview with Sarah Ramey. Now I've been trying to psych myself up to give you a real, you know, efficient, quick intro, but I don't think I'm going to be able to, so please bear with me. My father died about a week ago. The news is crazy and horrific and sad. And I haven't put out a podcast in four months because of extreme fatigue and adrenal and thyroid insufficiency and bottomed out levels of electrolytic minerals, as some of you will know from listening to previous episodes, recent episodes. I'm feeling better. I'm having my energy slowly return. I've learned so much that I hope to share in the future and have so much I could share about my father's passing as well. I'll link to my post about it in the show notes if anyone is interested. It's it's too big of a story. His life, his death, our relationship, his alcoholism for me to lightly touch on here. So I'll put it there if anyone wants and I'll I'll dive deeper in the future. Sarah has been living with chronic illness for almost two decades, maybe two decades at this point. Her incredible book is called The Lady's Handbook for Her Mysterious Illness. I read it in the spring, interviewed her in July, and now finally getting this out in November. I really look forward to picking up the pace a little more with this podcast, even just sitting here on my computer the last couple days, getting it together. I remembered how much I love doing this. I have been asked by many, many people to cover this topic more on this podcast. And perhaps you listened to the most recent episode, 105, with Sophie Strand, where we talk about this as well. One thing I was really struck by re-listening to this and a conversation I've had with so many women over the years is that my generation, I was born in 1981, we really seem to be pioneering (laughs) chronic illness, autoimmune issues. It's hitting us first. And there are many reasons for this. Sarah and I talk about that in this podcast, you know, clearly um, toxic load of the environment and the foods we eat. And I will now say lack of minerals, lack of ability to detox because of the lack of minerals in our bodies. And many other things have led to this. And as a mother of two daughters, I am so focused on trying to prevent this from happening to them. And of course, I am not fully in control of that in any way. And I'm just interested in this larger conversation of generational health and what we are doing to ourselves and our children with the choices that 
we are making and the choices that we are making, you know, the choices we're making collectively that, that we actually have no control over as individuals. I want to let you know that we are having a sale for this whole Black Friday time, exciting time in all lives of Americans, right? I know I have a list of websites I want to visit on that day, on that weekend, and see if I can get a little discount. And we haven't participated in this in, in many years just because it's our, um, our ingredients are limited, as I'm always talking about. You know, we grow them or harvest them ourselves. And, but we're going to do it this year. So 20% off everything in the Mythic Medicinals online shop from Black Friday the 24th to Cyber Monday the 27th. All our body oils, mugwort, St. John's wort, yarrow, the breast oils, all of it are extra potent elderberry elixir, which tends to sell pretty quickly. Our earth essences, all of it. I'm not going to name everything. Mythicmedicine.love. A discount will be automatically applied. And if you want to jump in there with an extra coupon code for an extra 15% off our St. John's wort oil. I usually keep these discount codes only for newsletter subscribers, but I don't know. I'm just feeling so, um, so torn open, so raw, so human in the last few weeks. I was like, no, I'm going to give it to everyone. So the coupon code is winter sun. You can use that to get 15% off St. John's wort oil on top of the 20% off that everything will already be for those four days. All right, mythicmedicine.love. And I also want to let you know about the Patreon bonus for this episode. My goodness, bless you patrons who have stuck with me through this fallow period. It's so nourishing and sustaining and gives me truly the energy to come back and put so much time and effort into this podcast again. The Patreon bonus is actually open for everyone, not just patrons. And it is a giveaway of Sarah's incredible book that I loved so much and could not put down, The Lady's Handbook for Her Mysterious Illness. It's a memoir of her two decades of trying to figure out what was wrong with her, fighting the medical system, feeling totally alone in it, and then realizing that she was not alone and that millions of other people are going through this as well. So if you go to patreon.com slash medicine stories between now and December 14th and leave a comment on the post, um, just telling us how this episode touched you, how chronic illness has touched your life or those of people you know, leaving a comment will enter you to win. And then a winner will be chosen at random and Sarah will sign a book and send it to you. So that is it. Thank you for being here. As always, anything we talk about in this episode will be in the show notes. Anything I've talked about in this intro will be in the show notes. And I really hope that this interview resonates with and helps many, many people who listen. Thank you. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to Medicine Stories. I wanted to talk to you because uh, your memoir was absolutely riveting. I read it in less than 24 hours, you know, while 
mothering, like living wow. my life. <laughs> I couldn't put it down. I immediately gave it to my friend who was leaving on a plane to visit her sister. She read it within a few days and texted, can I give it to my sister, please? I said, yes, please Aww. keep it going. <laughs> so thank you for being here. I'm really, really excited to share your story with my audience because as I told you, I've been asked to talk about chronic illness and um, you know, being a woman in the modern medical system on this podcast mm-hmm. so many times. So thank you for being yeah. here. Oh, well, thank you so much. And thanks for telling me that story. I was like hearing those stories. I'm like, oh, it mattered. <laughs> oh, God, it mattered so well. And I had found it from a friend, you know, she put it in her Instagram stories and I I was like, oh, I just, am I going to resonate with this book? Is it relevant mm-hmm. to me? I, so, I love memoirs. I'll, re- I'll buy it, you know. She said it was, you know, life-changing for her to read it as well. So, so I've never read a memoir quite like yours, right? It's mm-hmm. extremely medically personal. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bodily yeah. personal. Mm-hmm. And I just, you kind of blew my mind. Just, be, oh, she did this. She just did this. She's like, I'm going to write this book where I talk about these awful things that have happened to me in gynecologist's office and pooping on trays to get, <laughs> you know, whatever your stool samples taken. Right. You know, Somebody's though, I, do it. <laughs> yeah, thank you for doing it. I just can't. How many, how many, can we start with statistics? Cause I think you talk about like how many women out there are dealing with chronic illness? Well, that's kind of hard to measure. It depends on which chronic illnesses you're talking about. You know, I, th- I think the statistic is that one in two Americans has a, a chronic illness of, of some kind. So it's obviously it's a lot of people. But then when you get into talking about the types of illnesses that that I'm really talking about in my book, you know, it's called the Ladies Handbook for Her Mysterious Illness. And these are what I'm really talking about is this family of illnesses like chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, Lyme. Uh, mast cell activation, Ehlers-Danlos, we were just talking about that. There's a family of illnesses and then related problems that kind of have all the same things in common. They have very similar symptoms. They predominantly affect women. And the other thing they have in common is that they're all treated as if they're all in your head when you go to the doctor and that you go in there with this giant mountain and they tell you that it's a a molehill and everyone (laughs) that has these problems has at least dealt with that problem, you know, most of the time, not all of the time. There are sometimes doctors who are a lot more empathetic, but mostly it's living with this horrible condition, depending on where you are kind of on the spectrum of severity, but being told, that it's not happening at all over and over and over again. And there's just turns out to be, yeah, I write about this in the book. I thought that I was the only person that was dealing with that phenomenon and that it had to be this just absolutely unique, never before seen problem. And in fact, as I, you know, had been sick long enough and started to meet more and more people, and especially as I started being more open about what's going on with me, I started to realize that it was not just me. It, in fact, it's, you know, millions and millions and millions of people, predominantly women, like I said, but who have these types of problems and who are experiencing this over and over and over again, which kind of blew my mind because I come from a family of doctors. And to me, 
you know, that's what you're trained as a doctor is to look for patterns and to see, you know, that's how you diagnose something is you, you, you sort of run this algorithm through your mind. of like, ah, X, Y, Z, you know, uh, symptoms and, you know, equals, you know, these three potential diagnoses, and then you run blood work. And that is not what happens with these problems. They're like, I know what this is. X, Y, Z symptoms equals a woman badly in need of an antidepressant or a woman badly in need of a hobby or or more friends or, or some unbelievably patronizing response when in fact you have a really serious, really debilitating problem. And so that just turns out to be just this enormous, enormous number of women. It's it's hard to, not, not all women, uh, but it's hard to quantify just because you have to look at, well, are we talking about chronic fatigue? Are we talking about all the mystery illnesses? Are we also talking about autoimmunity? Because that's very related to these types of problems. So it is kind of hard to put a, a firm number on it. But, you know, we're getting up into the tens and tens of millions of, of people. I would love to touch on the evolving nature of illness in modern society because it ha- it is mm-hmm. changing, right? This was not an issue when our mothers were our age um, to this extent. But I suppose we should start by having you share a little bit of your story, which I don't even, how do you even do that on podcasts? I mean, the whole book is so (laughs) multifaceted, but, you know, perhaps I'm extremely interested in this idea of the exposome. And Mm -hmm. I had just learned about it when I read your book and was like, oh, this has been so helpful for me. This is a lot of what I'm unearthing in my life now at middle age. Like, you know, what, what was I exposed to in my life so far that's led me to the health issues I have? So, you know, perhaps as you're sharing your story, we can be talking about what the exposome is and what you're, what you, I really learned from your book. I'm sorry, I'm rambling, but about the extremely multifactorial nature of chronic illness that it's rarely one thing maybe never one thing it's many different things that happen it's a snowball effect it's just like an unlucky intersection of many factors yeah well that's actually one of the hallmarks i I think this is part of what leads doctors to believe it's hypochondria is that this particular type of problem is unlike a lot of different types of chronic illness, you know, that have a very distinct set of symptoms that are limited mostly and and recognizable. These types of problems, and this is true for all autoimmunity, but also chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, et cetera. One of the hallmarks is just the unbelievable mountain of symptoms that you have. If you take each one, each one is not a big deal. But if you put them all together and you've got, you know, 30 of these not a big deal problems, that's a huge deal, right? But when you're talking it through with with a physician frequently, you know, they're just focusing on each one and they're like, oh, well, that's not a big deal. Oh, well, that's not a big deal. That's not a big deal. Oh, you've got more than three? Then I don't want to hear about it anymore. I only have 10 minutes for you. And so it's just this this very complex problem, unfortunately, not for the doctor, for the patient to have to deal with so, so many symptoms. Uh, It's like having sort of this, it's the wrong shape of an illness. It doesn't fit into our our current medical model that really gives so little time to, to patients to begin with. And so if you've got this really complex problem, which is not your fault as a patient, you're probably going to, you know, get bounced out by, by the medical, you know, establishment when you go to see them, which you can kind of understand when you start to learn more about, you know, the forces in medicine that are forcing doctors to 
kind of doctor in a way that they don't really want to. They don't want to spend 10 minutes with each patient, but they have to in order to get paid by insurance, et cetera. And so it's just it's just this whole system that is not not set up particularly well, especially for these complex, difficult problems that what's happened instead of, of sort of changing the shape of medicine to allow these people in is to just reject them all. And so then all of us go over into, not all, but those who can afford to or those who are inclined go over, get bounced over into alternative medicine and start wandering around in alternative medicine, which can be really helpful. Like I'm pro-alternative medicine. I'm pro both sides of medicine, just where they are effective. This is sort of like the issue that all patients like this deal with all the time. To go back to, I kind of got off topic with talking about what's wrong with me. So I have a pretty complex issue, but the main things, the the top three things are the way that all of this started with me. This is really common. You know, people who have long COVID, I would put that in the category of these types of illnesses. That's triggered by COVID, of course, but having a trigger is extremely common, both for autoimmunity, but also for chronic fatigue syndrome, for fibromyalgia, for all of these types of problems. It's very common to have a trigger, and that's what happened with me. I was in my senior year of college, and I just had just a run-of-the-mill UTI that wouldn't go away. And I ended up going to this uh, urologist who performed a procedure that he shouldn't have performed. You know, long story short, he really damaged, he made a surgical mistake and he really damaged my pelvic nerves. And I became septic within 12 hours. Something went horribly wrong. The nerves were all damaged, unbelievably painful. I became septic, which is an infection of the bloodstream. I had to be hospitalized and put on a month of IV antibiotics. And it was just this really horrible incident. It's but, awful. And it, it's interesting, if I may, it was um, mm-hmm. was it like a physical trauma in this case, your, yeah. your trigger, which then of course, you know, led to an infection, which is a whole separate <laughs> trigger yeah. part of the exposome. Yes. And, and it's hard to say in my case, I think it would be difficult to say, I think it's, it's probably, you know, a combination of the the physical trauma of being essentially like assaulted with this instrument where you put where you shouldn't have put it. It's also the, you know, becoming septic is a is a huge deal. And so I wouldn't be surprised if that was the trigger for chronic fatigue syndrome, which I have, just in the same way that COVID, another infection, can trigger long COVID, which is very similar, if not identical, to chronic fatigue syndrome. So I had this inciting incident that was a multifactorial type of trauma. But I, you know, I'm 22 years old. I'd been completely fine before this. Like, and I had, I had some very minor little issues, but otherwise completely fine. And so they were all like, oh, you're going to bounce back. Everything's going to be fine. Don't worry. And that's what I thought too. I was like, oh yeah, I mean, can't wait to bounce back. <laughs> Get me out of here. And so I went back to school. I had this IV antibiotics that I had to port around with me everywhere and I was not better. I was suddenly, it was like, I felt like I had the flu all the time. I was sleeping constantly. My muscles ached and burned. I was so, so tired. Started having all these digestive problems, which I had never had before. My colon essentially stopped working without the use of like heavy use of laxatives. Like, And then I had really, really bad pelvic pain, which I hadn't had before. I had a UTI, but it wasn't like world ending vaginal pain. <laughs> and suddenly it was. And so 
all of a sudden, I've just got this like monster problem that I did not have before. And it did not make sense because, you know, this is 2003. I'm 42. This happened 20 years ago to me. And at that time, you know, now there's a very poor understanding of chronic fatigue syndrome. At that time, there was zero understanding of chronic fatigue syndrome. And so nobody, not nobody was like, ah, what a common presentation with the trigger of a, this infection that triggers this avalanche of symptoms, including, you know, myalgias, the pain in the muscles, the fatigue, the digestive issues, et cetera, a classic case of chronic fatigue syndrome, or it's also called myalgic encephalomyelitis. Nobody said that. It was this huge mystery where I started going to doctor, to doctor, to doctor, to doctor, trying to figure out, I mean, they thought I had AIDS, they thought I had cancer, they thought I had tropical disease, they thought I had all of these horrible things. But then when they couldn't figure it out, what was causing the extreme fatigue, the extreme pain, and all the digestive issues, slowly this new diagnosis started to emerge that we already talked about, which is ah, an unhappy young woman who doesn't know what to do with her life and is sort of manifesting that as this quote unquote illness. And I was like, what? (laughs) It's like, but what? That's clearly not true. I was completely fine and knew what I wanted to do with my life a couple months ago. What are you, what? This doesn't even make logical sense. It'd be different if I had presented with, you know, mental illness and things like that prior to this and, or was just exhibiting like a lot, like a trauma response and was really, really traumatized by what happened to me, but it wasn't. It was like, I just was sick where I hadn't been sick before. And so it was really upsetting to have that happen. And I, like I said, I really thought that I was the only person this had ever happened to until, you know, this went on for several years. And then I slowly started to meet more and more people who they would tell me their story. And they're like, well, it all began with this parasite that I picked up in Vietnam. And then all of a sudden, you know, things were never the same. And I, you know, my muscles hurt and I was so tired all the time and had all these digestive problems and blood pressure problems. And I'm like, well, shit. <laughs> I mean, that's the same, that's the same story. And I would just hear the same version of the same thing over and over and over again. And that's when I started to think about writing a book about it because I was like, well, this is so crazy. I shouldn't be the one that can like recognize this and my doctors can't recognize this for for what it is. And so that's how I started started writing, writing about that. Oh my gosh. I can imagine how deeply your book has touched women who have gone through what you've gone through. I really feel like you pull back the curtain on this world that you don't know about unless you've personally experienced it. Yeah. It's 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 also incredible what you did with that book. I appreciate that. I mean, it's also, I think like you're saying, like it's super graphic and it's super personal and That to me felt very important because I think that's a huge part of why it's so hidden is that it's very difficult. Like we we live in like a social media age where all everybody does is is put like the best part of themselves forward. It's very difficult (laughs) to be like, oh, well, my update is that I just had to give like my third stool sample (laughs) of the week. And then I cried for a long time afterwards because it was so humiliating and I spilled it. (laughs) You know, these are things that are so difficult to talk about. And so nobody talks about them. But like when that is your life and it has completely taken over your life, it's like 
it's so painful to not be able to talk about that with the people around you. And that that's what I wanted to do because I did feel, at least in writing, I feel very comfortable <laughs> talking about all that stuff. Just because for me, it's cathartic for me to be like, this is happening. I do not want this to be hidden. I want to be seen for like what is actually happening in my real life. Cause that's, what's so painful to me is to feel so out of step where people are like, wow, you look completely healthy and normal and you sound completely and healthy and normal. You must be completely and healthy and normal. That's so kind of upsetting <laughs> in the context of, you know, cause we don't say that to other people who have a serious disease I could be sitting here and having cancer right now and I wouldn't, nobody would say to me like, eh, well, you don't look like it. <laughs> they would just accept that, 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 oh, you have that. I'm so sorry. And if I said that I was really struggling with it, nobody would say, well, I don't believe you. I mean, some, maybe somebody would, but it wouldn't be the overwhelming response, but that is what happens to every single person that has one of these problems. And so that's just what makes it so it's adding this layer, this enormous layer of insult to injury because it's enough to just be sick, but to be sick and to be questioned by your friends, your doctor, your family, your neighbor, your whoever constantly is 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 just so painful. And so that was what I wanted to try and kind of mm, make visible some of the things that are that are invisible to to help you know people feel less alone. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I imagine there was an impulse for vindication or validation in writing this book and explaining to people who've been in your life for so long, maybe like, this is what I was going through all that time. Yeah. You were doubting me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely part of the motivation. It was like, I'm going to write this for, you know, yeah, name names here, <laughs> you know, for so and so. Totally. So you said that in 2003, you know, no one knew what they were looking at. If you went to the doctor now with the same presentation of symptoms, would they know what they were looking at now? How much has changed in those 20 years? That's a great question. It's especially changed in the last three years since COVID and the emergence of long COVID, which is, you know, just go do your research on long COVID. You know, the, the estimate is about 50% of long COVID patients have what's called ME-CFS, which is chronic fatigue syndrome, myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome. And there's so many people all experiencing it at the same time with the entire world watching, which is so different from what would happen before, which is that it was all just essentially atomized. It was just all these people all over the world experiencing this thing, but without sort of like the global spotlight, like on the emergence of this new phenomenon. And so long COVID emerging ha really has triggered this huge research to finally look into these problems. And also what, something that's so funny is like when I was preparing for podcasts and things like that, when the book came out in 2020, one of the things that people would ask me, similar to question what you just asked me, which is like, well, where's the medical establishment at? And I would say, well, funny you should ask because, you know, the CDC, the CDC, still is recommending to people, this is in 2020, that the treatment for chronic fatigue syndrome, they just had like a little paragraph that was like, you know, three inches long. And all it said was the treatment is cognitive behavioral therapy and exercise. And that's the treatment for chronic fatigue syndrome. It didn't talk about what it is. It didn't talk about, all it did was just indicate, yeah, you're just lazy or deconditioned and you just need to try harder, which man, if that was it, 
God, that would be so, (laughs) so much easier. But that's, of course, not what it is. And within three months, because my book came out when COVID came out, it came out in March 2020. And uh, within three months, uh, long COVID had become this thing that everybody was talking about. And lo and behold, what changed? Suddenly, the CDC's website just updates one day, and it's like nine pages long on chronic fatigue syndrome. It's all the, you know, suspected causes. It's all about like how to be more empathetic to these patients and that they've been mistreated in the past and that they're really suffering and it has a lower quality of life than most, you know, chronic illnesses that we take very seriously. And it was like, holy shit, (laughs) like that to just see that change so fast overnight to, to just be accurate to just they just finally had essentially the media attention because a lot of people as soon as long covid came out the whole mecfs community was like well we could tell you what's going on here it looks really familiar and so the long covid community was really interested in talking to the mecfs community to understand what are the treatments, how, why is this happening, you know, just something. And I think it was actually very scary for those long COVID patients to be like, oh my God, first of all, I didn't know that all these patients were here in this kind of abyss suffering. I had no idea. And two, oh no, I'm one of those people. What if what if medicine does this to me too? And, and of course that is what started to happen. Because of that, there's suddenly all these people who are writing about their experience and that are, that are that the media is really focusing on and the media is like, well, what's MECFS? Because all these long COVID people are talking about that all the time. And so then they go to research it and the CDC is like, oh, you just could do cognitive behavioral therapy and exercise. And they're like, oh, is that really? Is That doesn't sound right. And so all of that pressure kind of like all at the same time, I think forced the CDC to finally, you know, have this internal reckoning and change their information for the public. And what I've seen is that when I go to the doctor now, it's kind of hit or miss, but there's a lot more acceptance. If I say I have chronic fatigue syndrome, you know, now (laughs) the bar is so low. Now they're like, oh, okay. And they write that down before they'd be like, oh, (laughs) oh, and they would give me a look and they wouldn't even write it down. They would just be like, got it. You're one of those people. And now they write it down as a real diagnosis. And this is, again, the bar is unbelievably low, but that's a lot of progress is to to just have them without stigma say, oh, you've got this. I'm sorry to hear that. Let's, you know, write that down and keep working on what we can work on in this, in this appointment. That's a big change. Now, there's obviously that's not where it should be, where it should be is, ah, so are you on the following treatment protocol, which is the, you know, protocol advised by the CDC and blah, blah, blah. That's not happening because there is no good treatment protocol yet for these problems. But that's because of the long, decades-long neglect of these illnesses. You can't have a treatment protocol if you're not studying the disease. People are always like, what makes it so mysterious? I'm like, (laughs) the only thing that, that is not mysterious about this is why we don't understand them. And that's just because they're, they've basically gone unfunded the the last 40 years. And so you can't know a disease if you're not trying to know it. I mean, that's just, it's it's simple. And that's changing a lot too. The, the funding is starting to open up. And so 
I can see it shifting. There is a really long way to go in terms of compassion, in terms of believing the patient, and especially in terms of treatment. But at least it's you can see the door is starting to open and that you know, somebody that's just been staring at it like not just like shut, but like sealed shut for so long, that is at least a sign of of hope because I, I don't think it'll shut again. I think it's just gonna keep getting pushed open. So that's good. Yeah, I became aware of ME CFS um, when the Whitney Defoe story mm-hmm. was at the Washington Post or some major newspaper about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so I've continued to follow his story ever since. And I mean, that's, yeah, what do you so, have to say? For people who, well, for people who don't know Whitney, yeah. Whitney, so there's a, for all, I call people like us, uh, well, me as a woman with a mysterious illness or a mommy, a man with a mysterious illness or a pomy, a person with a mysterious illness, whatever you want to call it. I wish there was a better, more serious sounding name, but there really is an umbrella that that sort of goes over all these problems. And one of the things that you see once you're in that community is that there's, just like any other disease, there's sort of a spectrum from from mild to extremely severe. And Whitney Defoe, he's the son of, of a really prominent MECFS researcher. Who pivoted uh, his research. Correct. He got very sick. And when he realized people don't take this seriously, and I didn't take it seriously until my son became bedbound. Yeah, exactly. So his right, his father, Ron Davis, he was a researcher. I don't know what he researched before this, but when he saw his, his son get sick, he pivoted his research into MECFS. And, and Whitney, he's really worth looking up. For Whitney, it's not invisible. You know, it's very visible that he's really profoundly, profoundly sick. And I've been to that end of the spectrum as well for for years. And what usually happens is you just disappear because you're just even too weak to like post online or to make a phone call or to see anybody. And so you just disappear. And so it's been incredibly brave and sort of noble what Whitney does documenting exactly what he looks like. It's really rough. It is really painful to look at. And I think that's so important because that is what it looks like when you're all the way at that end of the spectrum and you're just so, 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 so sick. He's one of the sort of more prominent people in the community and has done done a lot of good. I think that that's all of us who are in this community is like in our own way are trying to do the same thing is to like make this invisible thing more visible to people, whether it's in writing or photo documentation or or whatever it is, because just because something is not visible does not mean that it's not happening. Pain is not visible. <laughs> and, you know, pain is extremely real and profoundly debilitating. I live in a profound amount of pain all the time and you wouldn't be able, people are always like, wait, right now? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> right now. But like, what am I going to do? Like I had one day in like a fit of frustration, I bought this, um, bike it's like a clip that goes on a bike that's like a red blinking (laughs) light and I was like I'm gonna wear this in my interviews (laughs) so that there's like this external manifestation of this internal thing that I'm feeling but I can't blink all the time I can't be like ouch 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 forever for the next 20 years of my life and so I just have to you know say I'm in a lot of pain and then deal with everybody saying well that that can't be because right now, I mean, what do you mean? Why are you doing this interview? And it's like, well, right. If I was only in pain for a week, I would certainly cancel the interview. Mm-hmm. But if it's your whole life, then you have to start 
participating or you you want to start participating in the world again so that you're not just waiting to start your life when things get better because they're not getting better and so then you just start having your life just starts disappearing in in front of you because you're you're not doing anything because you know you're you're acting in a way that is more about like having an acute illness as opposed to a chronic illness when it's chronic you have to start to rearrange the way that you you know approach life and sort of put yourself through a lot more than you would normally put yourself through because you don't you sort of don't have a have a choice because it's not going to get better next week or next month yeah sophie strand who is a recent podcast guest living with chronic illness did a, a post about feel better soon right <laughs> she's like i'm yeah. not going to yeah and we stop yeah. um, i'll link to like whitney's social media and website and stuff below That'd and be great. one thing that makes him interesting is that he's a man right mm-hmm. so this is and you know many people he, he's a man and he has this father who he's a doctor i think yeah and, researcher so there's you know he got taken more seriously. And then he got this huge article written about him that brought many people's attention to this, like mine. So like, that's a positive, but there is this, I mean, my gosh, my like inner, you know, feminist was on fire reading your book. I was so charged even earlier when you're talking about the way that the medical establishment, mostly men, but plenty of women too have, you know, have gone through the same medical training and have the same mindset around medicine and bodies. God, the way you were treated, some of those stories, I mean, I was crying, you know, and mm-hmm. I've, and of course I've, I've had similar experiences in those kind of yeah. situations, your fucking feet in the stirrups, you know, mm-hmm. <sighs> I guess I don't really have anything to say about that. It's just fucking, <laughs> I'm so sorry to the millions and millions and millions of women out there who've been gaslit to the ends of the earth. Yeah, into medical issues. Yeah. Yeah, it is truly crazy making that you can be treated in. I mean, my case is a great example because there are some really extreme examples, obviously, in the book of what happened to me. But that is not unique to me. Like that is so many people (laughs) who read the book, you know, reached out and were like, oh, let me tell you, you know, my equally (laughs) unbelievably painful, horrible story. And it's funny when I talk to doctors who are like my peers, people that I grew up with and are now doctors, they all say the same thing, which is like, that's just medicine now. Like that nobody is like, eh, that's not happening. Like I, when I talk to older doctors, they're much more in denial about the state of medicine and, and are sort of have this like, ah, oh, you just need to put your big girl panties on. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> believe me, I got my big girl panties on. If you were in this situation, you would be crying for your mommy. No fucking doubt about it. So don't say that to me. But younger doctors, I think, are way more aware that this is just the way medicine is structured right now is is bad for patients. And it's especially this type of patient, any type of marginalized patient, right? This is sort of a separate topic, but it it obviously, you know, braids into what we're talking about. Anybody that has any layer of marginalization, whether you're a person of color, whether you're LGBTQ, just we know by the data receives worse treatment at the doctor. And the same thing is very clearly true for women. And 
that, you know, when people are like, well, why, how could all of these people have been overlooked for so long? I'm like, well, that's also not mysterious. We, I think there's a real tendency when it comes to women's issues to be like, oh, well, that's an issue that we've solved. <laughs> it's like, no, it is not. It This is, there is the whole history of women in medicine is just story after story after story, millennia after millennia, disbelieving women of just not allowing women to control their own health care, not allowing women to be believed when they say this hurts, this is bad, <laughs> you know, and it's different from what a male body might be experiencing. It's just discounted as not real. And I feel the one thing I know for sure in this very uncertain sort of medical landscape is that if you reversed the ratios, if it was, you know, eight out of 10 chronic fatigue syndrome patients were male, this would not be a mysterious problem. This would not be a problem with no zero treatments. This would not be a problem that was, you know, told to man after man after man that it's all in their head. There is just a 0% chance that that would be happening. When I look at the, because I've had a lot of men say to me, they're like, well, lots of men suffer from this too. And I'm like, right, they absolutely do. And they're suffering just as much. They have, they are unlucky enough to have gotten a woman's disease. <laughs> That's the problem for you, my friend, is that you have a problem that is stigmatized because it predominantly affects women. And you're going to be treated essentially as a woman from now on in the medical system as somebody to be disbelieved, somebody that if you can't like, quote, prove that you are in pain or you can't prove that you have this problem, then you don't have that problem. And you're just going to be told to, you know, take up knitting or to, you know, make more friends or spend time, more time outside. And that's just that, <laughs> that it's, it's the classic issue of like, there, we have so many problems in our society that affect marginalized people. And it, those problems obviously affect the marginalized people the most, no doubt about that. But then those problems then affect everybody else negatively too. It's not like they're just cabined off to just affecting women. It's like in this in this case, this problem, because it predominantly affects women, all these men like Whitney Defoe are now being treated terribly because they happen to have this problem that predominantly affects women. It's the same thing with the criminal justice system that, you know, predominantly, you know, negatively affects people of color. But now this really warped criminal justice system also, you know, treats, you know, white inmates, et cetera, like worse because of the way that the system is set up um, to be so brutal. So it's just, it's, I, I just see this in so many different areas and, it's not enough to just say that these, oh, these are just the problems of these communities that have to work it out for themselves. It's like, no, these are all of our problems because it affects all of us. And it's important to not just, you know, be looking out for for your own your own self. I don't remember if you cover this or not in the book. It seems like you must, but it like harkens back to the Victorians diagnosing every woman as hysterical who was just mm -hmm. having a normal fucking reaction to the society she was living in and that those reactions could be physically embodied. So I guess, you know, in that case, I'm talking about something that's actually psychosomatic. We're here, we're talking about true physical issues. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, I just think that for so long, we thought we had moved past that in mm -hmm. our society and in the way that we treat women who are having any sort of symptoms. 
a very common theme on this podcast is the brokenness of the medical system, um, which of course there's many good things. We're grateful for surgery and emergency medicine and some diagnostic tools and all that. But like, where, where do we go? What do you know? <laughs> so many, I mean, it's just, it's just a stupid question. So many systems, so many systems need to be. <laughs> it's hard to talk about. Cause it's like, when you start getting into, I mean, this is why we don't fix systems <laughs> is yeah. because it's really, really tough. And it takes a really long time because it took a long time to build a system up to be the way that it is, even if it's all warped. And it's much easier. It's very similar to like, you know, why medicine is so symptom focused and not root focused. You know, it's like, it's much easier to just like whack this mole <laughs> as opposed to dealing with like, why are there so many moles under the ground <laughs> that keep popping up? You know, it's the same thing. It's like when we're trying to talk about fixing medicine, you know, it's really complex and people have very uh, diverse <laughs> opinions about, about where to go. I think that what what I'm seeing, you know, one of the things for so long, the alternative medicine, which also included like eating real food, that was considered like witchy and 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 alternative. And so all of this stuff was all of this like really basic wellness stuff. When I started, people were like, oh my God, you and your crazy health journey. That's all become completely mainstream now. And that's good. It's a little bothersome to me that that's not, that we haven't, it's the same way with like the CDC up, updated their website on chronic fatigue syndrome, but didn't say, whoops, <laughs> man, we really got this wrong for so long. We are to blame for all of this psychological harm done to all of these patients. We are sorry about that. And doctors, if you're reading this, you probably did that too, and you should apologize. Mm -hmm. Of course not. Of course, they didn't do anything like that. There's something sort of very similar happening, although this is, it's all to the good, but it's just sort of annoying. Wellness is becoming a part of regular medicine, which I think is important because you asked me this question and I completely didn't answer it before to talk about the exposome. The exposome is the idea that illness doesn't just come from your genome. It doesn't just come from your genetics. It's that your genes are actually also responding to their environment, to, to what they are exposed to. So that includes, you know, the air that you breathe, the water in your house, but especially the food that you eat, and you're, um, you know, you've got microbiome, like that is a part of what you're being exposed to. You're just exposed on the inside to your gut microbiome. It's very important to health in ways that we are like only just starting to really understand. But again, all that stuff in the beginning, when I was writing about this in 2005, people are like, your gut, what? Your gut health, who? Like that is so out there, Sarah. And now it is like paper after paper after paper after paper at the NIH about how radically important, you know, your gut health is, et cetera. And so it's changing. It is clearly, there's this merging that's happening between the alternatives, quote, alternative side of medicine to me, it just seems like so common sense. It's one thing if you're talking about like past life regressions, which I'm not knocking that. It's just that that is like on one side of the spectrum of alternative. But we're talking about like not eating, not growing up on like a diet of Cheetos and SpaghettiOs like I did. <laughs> that that should be common sense. And that, but it wasn't for a really long time. And so 
it's, I think, very good to see that, that that is sort of being subsumed into regular medicine, that like most of the doctors that I go to now, they do check on that and like kind of try to work with you if there are things that could be improved with kind of the basic pillars of, you know, getting restful sleep, exercising, eating real food, et cetera. You know, some doctors more more than others because patients don't want to hear that. So it's 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 a tricky situation. But that's part of, I think, the evolution of medicine, and that's like kind of the bare minimum. You know, there's so many other things that that need to be addressed as well when it comes to the exposome. But but I can see that that is changing, and it, I wish it would change a little. A little faster because you know when we talk about when people ask well why are these illnesses so prevalent now when they weren't 40 years ago I, I really think that that's the answer and it's not just one thing it's not like oh there's more chemicals in our environment or oh the microbiome or oh too many cheetos or whatever it is I think it's the aggregate of sort of having an era where we just have been a pretty unhealthy exposome for the last 40 years. And now it's starting to manifest in all of these really weird, complex health problems that kind of didn't exist or certainly didn't exist in the volume that they exist now. They weren't there before. And I think that that's quite challenging to have to deal with because it's not just the normal model of, oh, we just have to identify this virus and then come up with a vaccine and then it will be eradicated. This, you can't, it's a, you can't point the finger at something else. It's a, it partly points back at, at you and at society to change behaviors, to change, you know, everything that you're exposing your body to. And, and we haven't, I don't think we have a definitive medical understanding of what the right <laughs> exposome is like how many how much chemical exposure is okay how much is not what is the right diet to feed your microbiome you know or you know cuz cuz some people can take it you know in really far extremes and I, I don't think it's exactly understood what we should be doing it so we're just sort of in this period of i think correction of course correction of, of kind of getting really off course at least in terms of of health for the last you know 30 40 years and and we're trying to fix that now but it's challenging and it's not Again, it's it's multifactorial, and it's uh, it's it's hard to to change things when you have to ask people to change themselves. <laughs> that is, I think, a very can be a very heavy lift, but it helps to have it sort of be mainstreamed and like kind of everywhere and cool and like part part of like just life now is like this pressure to be well and like I like that because it's. I think that's more effective than, you know, having your doctor like waggle their finger at you or have me waggle <laughs> my finger at you, you know, that it's just kind of in the, in the culture, I, I think is, is a positive thing, even though I'm well aware of some of the negative sides of right. illness and you all that go stuff. too far, but I mean, the, yeah, I, cause you know, people have made fun of me. I've been really interested in wellness for like 20, since I was a teenager. I was yeah. Just, so, like, you know, <laughs> how can I optimize how good I feel yeah. and how healthy mm -hmm. I am and have been definitely made fun of and have definitely myself pushed myself into places that ended up being unhealthy. Yes. For the most very real. Yes. I like, you have to be on the defense in this mm -hmm. modern life. So I I'm 42 as well. And I 
like it's it's our generation of women especially who are pioneering the mm-hmm. habit of chronic illness you know who are like who were who were kids who were exposed to things that our parents and previous generations were not exposed to yeah and so we don't know this we can we continue to take all the antibiotics and get on birth control and you know and whatever and get exposed to natural viruses and um, bacteria in the wild and all sorts of other trigger events as part of our exposomes that at a we reach a certain age and you were in your early 20s which i you know i hear plenty of stories like that but also then the older you get the more that mm-hmm. burden is weighing you down and the breaking point's going to happen at some point for many people Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it really feels like it's like women our age, women of our generation who are looking around and going, shit, you too? Wait, you too? Mm-hmm. Okay, what are the commonalities here? And like, what, how do we, just just listening to you define the exposome makes me realize that I have mothered my daughters without having that concept in my mind in a way that has minimized their exposomes as much Mm -hmm. as I possibly can, you know, minimize any sort of like hardcore medical interventions that could hurt them and given them real food um, since they were born, which are things that, you know, my parents didn't think to do with me. Right. So it will be interesting to see going forward what happens to future generations and what what we can change now. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, and this isn't to just like, you know, bash our our moms. We we our generation is certainly doing things wrong that the next generation is going to have to correct i mean this is normal but it's important to not be i'm anytime i'm talking to to an older woman there especially like of my mother's generation they do get a little defensive i was just like well but like we were like the first you know real working women and there's no time to you know make food but i'm like i i I get it (laughs) i completely get it i completely get it it just that doesn't mean that it's that that just means that society hasn't adapted to women leaving the kitchen and moving into the workforce. Well, how do we fill that vacuum so that we're still nourishing, you know, everybody in the family, including mom, you know, that can still eat, you know, real food and not because women are working have to eat, you know, Twix for dinner, which I did many, <laughs> many times. And like, it just... Yeah, I think we're just working through this, this, that it's so interesting to me that we barely talk about like what a world shaking change it is to have women move from the home into the workplace and that there was just like almost nothing done societally or governmentally to take seriously all the work that all those women had been doing for free for millennia that this is the reason that why there should be universal daycare and, and all of these things that are provided by the society because that needs to be there. We know no, most people don't have all of this help and nannies and all of these, you know, people that used to be there. They were called mom or grandma that used to be around and were just there to provide free labor all of the time. And it's if you're not going to have that anymore, which I support, (laughs) obviously, women moving into the workplace, that you have to have a backstop there, you have to have something has to fill that vacuum. But I think that, you know, there was such a devaluing of that type of work that there was nothing done to be like, oh, whoa, we we really need to, like, figure out what we're going to do about food and about childcare and about all of these things. It was just sort of, you know, left at the side of like, well, that wasn't important in the first place. We'll just, you know, 
make something work. And it's like, no, no, no. no well, no, no. the people who made it work was the mothers who were going to exactly work doing both home and still yes. doing that. And I think for sure, many of my mom friends who have had their health broken mm-hmm. would say it, it's the pressures of trying to make money and raise my kids and keep my home and cook at the same time that was a part of what broke my health. Yeah, exactly. Which is why it's like, yeah, this has changed for me actually in my evolution is that, you know, in the beginning I was very, when I, you know, learning about real food and how important this was, you know, for me as a single person, it's easier to be able to cook my own food and, and kind of go down that, that road. And that's important. But the, the older that I've gotten and the more sort of like broadened, my perspective has broadened. It's like, well, again, I think this is a systems thing. It's that we should, and this is happening, is that while there should, the idea of fast food is not such a bad idea if it was just quality food, right? The idea of having, it doesn't matter if you're making it. It just matters that you can afford it and that it's not, you know, making you sick over the over the long term. And so, you know, I, I have a little bit of hope when I start to see you know, more and more companies, you know, that are, that are trying to provide that, but it's too expensive the way that it is now, but, but that it doesn't have to be that you have to, you know, necessarily learn how to be domestic in that way. It just matters what you're putting into your body and that's going to look different for, for everybody. Yeah. So much of our conversation thus far has really made me just look at this this intersection or this meeting point between self-responsibility, eating better food, you know, the and just these societal forces that are beyond our control. And how like, you know, if there's chemicals in your tap water and all you have is tap water, that's mm-hmm. there's not, you know, it's I guess I just wanna say like we can all do our best, but we're all embedded in deeply toxic systems as well. Yeah, I mean, that's just the reality. And it's also, I just want to say, because sometimes listening to all of this, it just starts to feel very overwhelming and very scary. And like, everything is bad and toxic. And, you know, I mean, my perspective on it now is like, yep, I mean, (laughs) but there's nothing I could do. I mean, I'm doing what I can. And it's important not to become so wrapped around the axle that like, you're just like afraid of being alive at all and, and being in an environment and being afraid that like of every single chemical and every single thing. I think, I think that that's not necessary. And that's certainly not what I'm, I'm saying. It's just the, the overabundance of all of these things is the issue, not the presence of some low level, whatever. Yeah. We have yeah. to walk the line between being aware as, as we live our lives and our exposures build, knowing that a mm-hmm. true event could be coming and not driving ourselves crazy and actually making ourselves Yeah, ex- exactly. I think that's very important to, yeah, walk the line between, you do have to take some self-responsibility. I think that's that can be like a bitter pill for some people who just don't want to at all. But don't don't drive yourself crazy trying to be, you know, perfect about food, perfect about chemicals, perfect about your environment, perfect about all of these things, because you really will drive yourself crazy and, and there's no way to achieve to achieve, to achieve that. And so it's just part of it is you have to be a little bit, a little little part of your personality is to become like a nihilist. That's just like, well, (laughs) nothing I can do. Be a nihilist and an optimist, be on defense and offense. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Um, I really love this part in the book where you write about like looking to have your story reflected to you. 
And especially in like the larger archetypal stories we tell in our culture and in mythology and Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey. And when you really realize like these are all extremely masculine over narratives and mm-hmm. I'm not seeing my, my feminine journey into the underworld reflected here. Right. Yeah. So I had been, I sold the book in uh, 2010 and very much in my mind, you know, I was actively structuring it on the hero's journey, the story that I was going to tell. And also when I sold it, I had actually just been diagnosed with this parasitic infection that everyone thought was going to be the end of the story because it had been missed and it was a very serious infection. And so everybody was just like, this is it. This is the end of your story. You win (laughs) and you have overcome this and you're going to go on to, you know, conquer the world. And that was like at the, it was very poor timing because it was at the exact moment that I was like writing my book proposal and selling it. And so I just wrote that in because I just was like, yeah, that's my story. That's what's happening. Even though I was starting the treatment and it wasn't helping at all. I was like, oh, that's just going to give it, going to give it some time. Well, this, and so I conquer the monster moment. Yep. And so I, long story short, did not get better. In fact, within three years had become like radically worse, not to do with the parasite or anything like that. Just my health fell off a cliff and I was sort of at the Whitney Defoe end of the spectrum as a wheelchair. I couldn't lift my head up. I was drooling under the pillow. I didn't speak to like a single friend for several years. It was horrible. And I was still on the hook to write this book. And I just was like lying there drooling down my face trying to think through like, okay, when I get better, how am I going to tell this story? Like it doesn't fit into the, into the stations of the cross, essentially like this. I'm not going to win. (laughs) I'm the dragon is not going to be slain. The dragon has very clearly slain me. (laughs) And that is not a narrative that anyone wants to read. That was what I was thinking in my head is like, that's just too depressing and too horrible to like, just be like, yep. And in the end, I lost the end. Thank you for reading my book. And so I started thinking through, you know, like, well, what are other ways that I could tell the story? And just how do I how do I tell the story in a way that feel that is, does not feel dishonest to me where I'm not trying to, because I see this happen a lot with sick people where they are doing everything they can to fit their story into the story of triumph. But it's like really obvious that they're not better <laughs> and that they're not, they'll be like, oh, and that's when I found yoga and my life is just so much better now. It's as better as it could possibly be. And I'm like looking at them and I'm listening and I'm like, I don't think that's true. I think that you're still sick it's okay to say that. It's okay to say that you didn't win and you didn't conquer everything and that yoga wasn't the answer. Like, But there's just so much pressure to feel like you have to present this really strong, triumphal, triumphalist narrative. And so anyway, I was like, well, maybe there's like a like an alternative narrative. And I was looking at, I read all this Joseph Campbell and I was like, no, he's not. He really is. He's like, this is the one true story that is in all stories, in all cultures, you find this story. And so one day I was just like, well, maybe there's like a heroine's journey. (laughs) And like, in my mind, I was like, you know, it's just like the feminine version of the same thing. I was like, it's just a woman going through the same things, but it'll look a little bit different. And 
I started researching about that and I found this book called The Heroine's Journey and I ordered it and uh, and I'm reading this story and I was like, holy shit. <laughs> and it was this story of basically the premise is the heroine's journey. It's not the hero's journey. It's a completely different story. But just like the hero's journey, this story shows up in every single culture, no matter who you are, where you are. It is not the story of, you know, Frodo going out to destroy the ring and and demolish the the forces of evil. It is the story of Persephone. I think that's the most accessible story to most people, which is the abduction of this woman via a trauma, a rape. That's what happens to Persephone. And she gets pulled into hell. And then she becomes not not just like a, a journey through hell. She becomes the bride of hell, she becomes an actual resident in the underworld, who then becomes a guide to other souls that are passing on their journey through the underworld as well. And as I'm reading about this, I was like, oh my God, (laughs) it's like, that's me. That's everybody like me. That's that person that's writing their yoga journey and is like, I won, I won, but clearly didn't win. Well, but they did, but in this other way where they have been sucked in, probably because of the collapse of their health, into the underworld, which I think represents sort of like the the inner parts, the inner part of your own psyche, the inner part, you know, this is what Jung calls the collective unconscious and, and your own unconscious, but also into your body. So one of the initiating factors is often illness, you know, that like pulls you suddenly, normally you don't think about your body, but when you're sick, you think about your body all the time and the inner workings, uh, but also into the underbelly of the culture. And suddenly, this is what happens to everybody that's traumatized is suddenly on sort of like the underside it's like going into the upside down where everything is like very dark and scary, but also you really, and this was, this is not in the book that I was reading. This is like where I started to develop my own theory of the case, which is that when you go into the underworld, well, what's in the underworld? It's the root system of everything in the upper world. And so this is where you start to look around and start to see what is causing things to be the way that they are on the upside? And that is the story of everyone who is traumatized, whether it's traumatized by, you know, domestic abuse or traumatized by racism or traumatized by illness or traumatized. There's so many different things that can sort of pull you into the underworld. But then what happens to that person? Sometimes they can get stuck because it's just too traumatized and they kind of get stuck in hell and they can't get out. But a lot of people, what happens is that you start to be, you spend so much time down there that you start to become this person who can see in the dark and who can see and wants to see what is causing things to be so bad in the upper world or or unhealthy in the upper world, whether that's culturally, whether that's psychically, whether that's physically, whatever it is. And then you go back up into the upper world. This is what happened with Persephone. She was sort of half light, half dark. She would spend half the year in the upper world and half the year in the underworld. You go back into the upper world and it's your job to address what you saw in the underworld to help fix things so that they are that they are healthier in the root system down below. And that really, to me, really is the story of every single person that I know that's gotten sick, every single person that's been through a terrible personal trauma or collective trauma is that they start to get really interested in the health of systems and in 
fixing things down at the roots because it is not enough to fix things up just at the flowers and at the the stems. It's you have to fix things down in the roots and it's difficult and it doesn't, it's not unlike the hero's journey. It's not this like one epic journey where you go out and you fix it and then it's done. It's this cyclical process that happens over and over and over and over again, where you come up and you start, you fix a little bit over here, and then you go down and you look again, and then you come up and you fix a little bit more. And it just goes on for a lifetime. You know, there's this Jewish saying that some problems are not for you in this lifetime to fix, but that doesn't mean that you don't work on it, you know, for your entire lifetime. It can be the work of your lifetime. You just may not see the fruits of it while you're alive. And that's, I think, very much the work of kind of everyone I know that has these problems. They all become (laughs) nutritionists, yoga teachers, writers, like activists, people that are trying to, they're healers. They are trying to help and heal and make things better. And it's the same (laughs) universal narrative that's so unbelievably common in the same way that the hero's journey is, but it's completely different. It's sort of its dark twin. Yeah. So that was really helpful to me because it really helped me have a narrative that was strengthening as opposed to feeling like just a failure over and over and over again, but was like, well, actually there is something that is happening to me that is allowing me to help other people. And it's okay that I don't fix the problem, that I don't fix medicine, that I don't fix myself, that it's just this process of trying to do that and trying to do as much as you can, but it's okay if it's never all better. And that that is I, I think I think important because that's the reality of life <laughs> and that there's a lot of problems that may not be solved, but that you can improve and you can sort of improve your little patch and keep working on it. I love that. I love that's so beautiful, so helpful. And like you got to end your book in a truthful, still yes. hopeful <laughs> way, you know, still like on a high note. <laughs> right. Like, Which is real for me. Like I'm a pretty hopeful person and I didn't want it to be like, again, twisting myself into this shape that was not me. That's like, because people always went they're like, oh, they always think, oh, if you wrote a book about this, because they haven't read the book, they're like, well, how did you overcome it? What's your story of triumph? And I'm like, oh, that tells me <laughs> that you definitely didn't read it <laughs> because that's not my story. I am, I am not. It's no triumph, but that doesn't mean that there aren't elements of hope. And But it also doesn't mean that it's all hopeful. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. another thing is I didn't want it to be just like, you know, and, and happily ever after, because it's not happily ever after. I'm still really struggling. And it can be both of those things. And that that's not just like a nicer way for me to end it personally. That's just reality. That is the way that it is. It is a mix of hope and despair. And like, I don't know, welcome to being alive, like being a person. Like it's always a mix of those two things. And I, I think that that's important to to be able to acknowledge. Yeah, I think, I think too, that you use the phrase in your book, canary in the coal mine, that like when as, as women and people who have chronic illnesses and people in the underworld, people who've journeyed through the underworld, like it's that's so many millions of people who can say, Hey, 
things are wrong up here. Yeah, Mm -hmm. these overworld, top world systems, we need to take a harder look here and make some changes. And like you said, it's the people who become healers. And I just, I have this vision of like all my underworld journeys, you kind of come up and gasp for breath, you know, Mm -hmm. before quite likely Mm -hmm. plunged back down again. And I mean, I I wouldn't be doing this podcast if it weren't for my underworld journeys. And it seems to resonate with countless people yeah heroin that's you yeah Yeah. what a beautiful framework and like a a truthful framework that is not offering false hope like sophie strand and all the people telling her to feel better soon right Um, i'm not going to feel better soon but i'm on my my heroine's journey and i'm i'm bringing anyone along who would like to learn along with me and bring whatever healing we can to others while we're here yeah exactly thank you sarah such a pleasure speaking with you the book again just impacted me so profoundly i will be like forever honored if even one person reads it after listening to this episode and you know it's going to change the lives i think of of everyone who reads it it did for me i really appreciate that thank you so much for having me having me on it's been great talking to you yeah so do you have like do people order through your website or do you have a website how can people find you and keep up with you online you can find me on Instagram. I'm also a musician called Wolf Larson, and I'm combining my two mm-hmm. things. So now my handle is Sarah is Wolf Larson, because I, I just don't have time to yeah. be two different people. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm just mushing them into one. So it's just Sarah uh, is Wolf Larson, and um, that should have links in my bio to, to all the things. But you can find the book on bookshop.org or on uh, Amazon or wherever is easiest for you. All right. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you for taking these medicine stories in. I hope they inspire you to keep walking the mythic path of your own unfolding self. I love sharing information and always put any relevant links in the show notes, which you can find by just scrolling down from wherever you pushed play on this episode. You can find all past episodes and our handmade herbal medicine at mythicmedicine.love. We've got reishi, lion's mane, elderberry, St. John's wort, mugwort, yarrow, redwood. We've got body oils, sleep medicine, heart medicine, earth essences, and more. While you're there, be sure to check out our fun quiz, which healing herb is your spirit medicine? It's lighthearted, but the results are really in-depth and designed to bring you into closer alignment with both the medicine that you're in need of and the medicine that you already carry and can bring to others. If you love the show, please consider supporting it at patreon.com slash medicine stories. It is so worth your time. There are dozens and dozens of killer bonuses there, ebooks, bonus conversations, uh, guided meditations, giveaways, resource guides, links to online learning, coupon codes, behind the scenes stuff. And the best of it is available at the $5 a month level. And it literally makes the show possible. You can also subscribe or follow. Uh, depending on which podcast app you prefer. The music that opens the show is by Marie Sue from her beautiful song, Wild Eyes. That's M-A-R-I-E-E-S-I-O-U. 
Thank you, my beautiful friend Marie. And thank you for listening. I look forward to next time.